0: There is a conspiracy afoot in our world, but not of the sort that you often hear. Watch the History Channel or listen to some podcast or late night radio show and you'll hear all kinds of things about aliens and assassinations, politicians, and new world orders. All kinds of theories. And that is all they are. Theories. Speculations built off of, in truth, paper-thin evidence. And they're usually all sinister in nature. After all, when's the last time you heard a conspiracy theory of some power intending good for the world? It's always some bad news, something we should hope is not true. Yet there is a conspiracy afoot in our world. And it is no mere theory, but fact. And unlike all the theories, This conspiracy is for our good. What if I told you that God has taken all of our follies, all of our pitfalls, and worked them together to bring about the salvation of humanity? That would certainly be a good conspiracy, wouldn't it? After all, who can deny that our world needs saving? The earth is ravaged by violence and war. Countries are divided. Homes are divided. We are alienated from each other. We're even alienated from ourselves. Confused about who we really are. These are all symptoms of our alienation from God. And our denial of that fact, in the end, only proves just how far removed we are from him. But he has conspired to bring us back to himself. To restore all the earth and we who inhabit it. And this has been his plan all along. How do I know? Because this is what Jesus has told us. And as it turns out, this whole plan turns on him. But God's plan doesn't look like anything we would sketch out. And we are reminded of this by Jesus' own testimony to his disciples and the feedback he receives. We turn this Resurrection Sunday once again to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 16, looking at verse 21. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and last week we covered verses 13 through 20, in which Peter recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King and Savior of Israel, the Son of the living God. In light of that confession, Jesus now begins to explain to his disciples what is going to happen. So we pick up in Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. There Matthew records, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So we stop here in Matthew. And we'll pick up the rest next week. But this is enough for us to chew on today. We see a change in direction in Jesus' ministry here. He's turning his focus from the region of Galilee in which he has been ministering and announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. And now he's setting his sights on Jerusalem where he knows that he's going to suffer and that he's going to be killed and that he's going to be raised on the third day. And he begins explaining all of this to his disciples. And in truth, they shouldn't be really surprised by what Jesus tells them here, because he's been hinting at it along the way. We look at Matthew 10, 38. Jesus tells his disciples, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Well, if the disciples are supposed to take up a cross and following Jesus, that suggests that Jesus has, is going to have some dealings with a cross. If you look at Matthew just earlier in this chapter, and more explicitly in Matthew 12, verses 39 through 40, when Jesus is asked of a sign from the Pharisees, he tells them, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus has been making allusions along the way about his suffering and also about his resurrection. He's saying, yes, I will suffer, I will die, but I will be raised from the dead. Now, as the disciples hear this, they have a very difficult time reconciling what Jesus is saying with what they're anticipating his ministry as the Messiah is going to look like. Remember, Peter has just recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus said, you're right, Peter. I am the Messiah. And now at this point, the disciples are probably getting very excited. They're like, oh boy, he's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to set up a palace in Jerusalem. We're going to be living the high life. So, when Jesus starts talking about him suffering and dying, and there is this thing about being raised from the dead, but the suffering and dying part really <laughs> throws the disciples for a loop, particularly Peter. They don't want Jesus to suffer and die. And what's more, they probably really don't want that for themselves. And this doesn't really seem like the kind of thing that they're expecting the Messiah to do. And so Peter responds, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happened to you? The Messiah is supposed to be triumphant. He's not supposed to suffer and die. Now, of course, we know Peter is wrong. That this is exactly what happens to Peter. They enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and by that Friday he is hanging from a cross. It was the Roman soldiers that killed him, but it was the elders in chief priests and scribes who conspired to bring it about. But their conspiracy, a typically bad kind, was already worked into the tapestry of God's much greater conspiracy to bring about the, the greatest possible good through Jesus' death. Because while Jesus also spoke about his suffering and death, he also spoke about his resurrection on the third day. This day. And that's just what happened. Though sealed and guarded, the tomb was found empty. Mary Magdalene was the first to encounter Jesus alive. And soon, he would appear to all of the disciples. In Luke 24, we hear the story of two that he encountered on the road to Emmaus. And you can turn there with me if you'd like. Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Starting in verse 13 of Luke 24. In recording the events of that Easter day, Luke writes... Their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what it was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now eventually, as as Jesus goes on with these disciples, he sits down at a table with them and their blindness is removed and they are able to see that this is Jesus. And then he, he disappears from their presence. Now he's truly eating with him. So we know Jesus is not a ghost. He is truly raised from the dead. He does have a little bit different body than our bodies because it's a transformed resurrection body. And so they go back to the disciples and said, we saw Jesus. He walked along with us on the road to Emmaus. But I really want to bring your attention to verses 20 and 21. Because it perfectly parallels everything that Jesus has told his disciples in Matthew 16 that they should expect. There they say, The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So here you hear Peter's kind of disappointment, like this can't possibly match up with the one who's going to be the Messiah. He cannot suffer, he cannot die. And then they say, and what is more, is the third day since all this took place. So they did remember what Jesus had told them that he was going to suffer and die and that he was going to be raised on the third day. But, even though they remembered all of this, they still couldn't believe that this was really the plan. That he was going to suffer and die. And what's more, it's the third day, they're saying, and We don't see him. The tomb's empty. What are we supposed to make out of that? Now, Jesus is thinking, well, what do you think you're supposed to make out of that? But they're doubting. They just continue to doubt. And this is why Jesus responds to them by saying, how foolish you are. How foolish. Didn't you know that this is exactly all the things that needed to happen? And so in verse 27, Luke says, this is what Jesus does. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What Jesus is demonstrating to these two disciples is that this isn't something novel that Jesus has just kind of come up on a whim, that he was going to suffer and die and be raised on the third day, but rather that all of the Old Testament scriptures, which in the, in the, in the early New Testament here, when they're talking about the scriptures, They're referring exclusively to the Old Testament because that's all they got at this point. He's saying that the Old Testament is pointing to all the events that have just taken place, that all these things have been necessary. Now, we do need to kind of turn to that testimony of the Old Testament in general to remember why even all this might possibly be needed. And I can't go into the text, because if I went through all the text, I'd have you here all day. So I'm going to give you an overview, a summary. Go back to Genesis. The world is created, human beings are created. We are created as creatures who are made in God's image. We we were supposed to be God's caretakers on the earth. We were supposed to be his representatives and Instead, rather than embracing that role of creature and being his children in relationship with him, we decided that we wanted to follow the rebellion of the devil, represented by the snake. And we decided that we wanted to be gods ourselves, because that's what the snake promised. It, wasn't really, it didn't have anything to do with fruit itself, it's what the fruit was going to provide of this forbidden tree is that we would become gods. Now, isn't that just the human tendency? That we all want to be gods. And maybe we don't say it as such, but we certainly act like it by the way that we live our lives. That we want to control all things. That we want to have all things. Our desires know no end. Now, this rebellion from God plays itself out across the pages of the Old Testament. God takes a special people out of all the peoples of the world and makes a covenant with them. First, he makes it with Abraham, and it follows with his son Isaac and Jacob, and it goes to Moses and David. He makes a covenant with the people of Israel that they would be a set-apart people, a holy people, that, in fact, they would be a nation of priests who would intercede between him and the nations, that they would shine the light of God's righteousness upon the face of the earth. And yet, all the patriarchs, all the people of Israel, at the end of the day, are unfaithful. They all fail in some way. God gives them a perfect law saying, this is what you need to do in order to be righteous. And they come up short of it. They are given kings. They decide, we don't want God as our king. We don't want a human king. God gives them a king. He gives them King David. And even while David is a man after God's own heart, we see him fail, him, him fail disastrously by committing adultery and murder. And all the kings that followed after him failed as well. And God anticipated this. He knew that they were going to fail. He had given them a sacrificial system by which they might make amends with him so that God would be able to dwell amongst them, that God might have a presence amongst them despite their sinfulness. He gives them this priestly system in which animals are sacrificed, perfect animals that are without blemish, which are offered unto God, to provide cleansing on the part of the people. And the priests intercede on their behalf. But the priests, they have to cleanse themselves because they themselves are sinners. And even while they offer these sacrifices, they end up being ineffectual. Because while they can provide a superficial cleansing and covering, the people go right back to their sins. What we see with the people of Israel is really a microcosm Of the condition of our world is that all of us are captive to sin all of us are subjects to evil in our hearts and so we enter on this carousel of catastrophe where we repent we come back to god but yet we fail again we go round and round turning to god rebelling once again and it leads nowhere except to death and ultimately God points out the fruitlessness of all of this through the prophets, through the message that he gives to his people. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah today. And at the very first chapter of Isaiah, this is what God says to his people. Isaiah 1, verses 13 through 17. He says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moons, feasts, and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean." Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God sees the same evil that we see in the world. And the point of origin is found in every single human heart. All of us are complicit. We need to wash and make ourselves clean, but we cannot. If we cannot clean ourselves of our selfishness, of our wickedness, how can we be saved? We are told by God through the prophet Isaiah that it will be by his suffering servant. And I believe it is very likely that Jesus took the two disciples to this scripture as he explained to them that all this was foretold. The prophecies of Isaiah were originally recorded 700 years before Jesus lived. And the oldest manuscript of Isaiah in existence today is from 125 years before he lived. So these prophecies aren't concocted. They're not a Christian fabrication. We're going to read today from Isaiah 53, and I've put on Isaiah 53 on slides so you can easily follow along. I'm going to read the verses on each slide and then offer a little bit of commentary. The bolded words, I want you to pay attention to this, the bolded words represent details clearly fulfilled in Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. The underlined words explain why these things happened, the meaning behind them. So first, we read, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So see, we, we see here in verse 2, it says that he had no beauty or majesty. That matches who Jesus is perfectly. He wasn't a noble. He was born in a stable. He was some guy from Galilee, from Nazareth, a backwater town. And I had no reason to be attracted to this guy, naturally speaking. And then we see in verse verse 3 how he suffered pain. How he was despised. And this matches everything that we see happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. And then you get down to verses 4 and 5, and we have explanation here of, well, why did this happen? Why it happens is this. Jesus suffered for our transgressions. That was the meaning behind it. He was suffering in order that we might have peace with God. That we would be healed somehow through his wounds. And we go on to the next set of verses, verses starting in verse 6. Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We've just talked about human rebellion. That's us. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he is cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. So again, we see, why is Jesus suffering all of this? It's for our transgressions. It's because of our sins. And as Isaiah is prophesying, he is oppressed. He is afflicted. When Jesus is brought before Pilate, he doesn't really make a defense for himself. He doesn't try to avoid death. He does not truly open his mouth in that regard. And where are the people protesting Jesus being led to the cross? No one is protesting. His disciples are scattered. Instead, we find the crowds crying, crucify him. Pilate offers, says, well, actually, you know, maybe I'll give you a choice between Barabbas or Jesus. We'll crucify one of them, and you can have the other. And they said, we'd rather have Barabbas. You crucify Jesus. No one protested. And so what happened? Jesus died. He was cut off from the land of the living. Now the last set of verses. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So we have some further clarification of what's going on here. Jesus is suffering. He's dying. What is it? What is the purpose of all this? It's so that he would make an offering for sin. We have all of this anticipated in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And we've talked about how fruitless those animal sacrifices were. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, said in the very beginning of the book, I'm sick of it. It's not making a difference. This makes a difference. This is the servant who's going to offer a perfect offering for sin. But catch this. There's some interesting, other interesting details here. We know that he's going to die, and yet this one who's going to die will see his offspring and prolong his days. How can someone who dies have his days prolonged? Likewise, verse 11 says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. So Isaiah's not only prophesying that this suffering servant is going to die, but that he will be resurrected. That he will see life again. And yet, we have it underscored again in verse 12. He is going to die. He poured out his life unto, unto death. And the condition of his death is interesting. He's numbered with a transgressor. So he's counted, his, our transgressions are on him, but we also know that Jesus was crucified with criminals. He was assigned a grave for the wicked. He had criminals on either side of him. And where is he buried? He's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man and with the rich in his death. Isaiah tells us the whole conspiracy. And it just so happens to line up perfectly with Jesus. Jesus. Even though it was foretold 700 years before Jesus lived, the divine conspiracy is that God would send his servant, in fact, the very Son of God, to become one of us. The crucial difference is that, unlike us, he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. And yet, he will suffer for all the sins of the world. He will bear our sins because he has no sins of his own to bear. And so he can bear ours. And so he can offer his life as a spotless offering to God. He can make things right between God and man. He can heal us. Now, it would be easy for us to wave this off as a bunch of religious speculation. But remember, we are dealing with historical facts here. Everything that Isaiah foretells is what happened to Jesus. No serious historian denies that Jesus died on a cross. No serious historian denies that the tomb was empty. They have different explanations for why the tomb was empty because they can't accept the miraculous. But we're going to see how ridiculous that is, even. See, you can't just dismiss these things. 25 years after Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven... We you have this testimony recorded by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3-8. through And it's often believed that this was an early confession of faith among the early Christians. He writes, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Notice what is counted as being significant here in Paul's confession. That these details of Jesus' life about His suffering, His death, His resurrection. These are not pulled out of thin air, but they are significant because they all occurred according to the Scripture, in accordance to the Scriptures, everything that was given in the Old Testament. God has entered into the middle of history through Jesus Christ, just as He promised. And many of us have experienced this reality. Those of you who have come to put your faith in Christ, you've encountered the reality of Christ, and you know He's real because your life is different. Your life is transformed. I know I would be half the man I am today. I'd be a miserable man today if it was not for Jesus Christ. I'd be lost in sin. And many of you realize that for yourselves as well. Now, we might try to dismiss this, our experiences, because we can say, well, you know, there are sincere Muslims out there. There are sincere Hindus out there. There are sincere Buddhists out there. But you see, there is a critical difference between the Christian faith and all other religions. Because while the teachers of all these religions left behind philosophies and teachings, only Jesus leaves behind an empty tomb. of even greater significance than our own experience is the experience of the apostles that Paul attests to here in 1 Corinthians 15. They saw the risen Jesus. 500 of them saw him at the very same time. There is no such thing as group hallucination. There's no experiences of that happening among 500 people. You can't pull that off. And if the disciples were lying that they just kind of wanted to make up a story that actually Jesus lived on and, um, and so there's something still to do and still be- to believe, then we must ask, why would they too suffer and die for a lie? Why would they be willing to do that when Peter himself protested, certainly, Lord, this can't happen to you, but then all of a sudden he's going to be willing for that to happen to him? What changes? What changes is what they've witnessed. They face torture and death because they saw Him raised from the dead. Just as the Scriptures foretold. They saw them fulfilled. There is a conspiracy afoot in our world. God has conspired to save us in Jesus Christ. All we must do is turn from ourselves and turn to Him. As the Scriptures say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As Paul tells us in Romans 8, verses 1-4, through 4, Therefore there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. You and I have been invited to join something more than what this world can offer. The conspiracies of this world cannot deliver us from war or disease. The conspiracies of this world cannot bring complete justice or lasting peace to earth. The conspiracies of this world cannot do any of these things or any other good thing that will last because they cannot restore us to God. They cannot deliver us from our own wayward hearts. Only Jesus Christ can do this. And if you will come to Him today, you will be forgiven. You will be cleansed of the wrong you have done. You will be given a future beyond selfishness, beyond your pride, clothed in love and humility. Death will not have the final say because you will one day be raised from the dead to live in a restored world. This is true. This is real because Jesus Christ is real. He died for us. and He has been raised for us in accordance with the Scriptures. Believe and be saved. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God eternal, we praise You this day because You are so great. Because You have so wonderfully conspired to redeem and save us, we who were wretched rebels who want nothing to do with You, Father we thank You that by the sending of Your Son, You fulfilled all which was foretold in the Scriptures. That in Jesus Christ, an offering is made for sin, so that we can be covered, so that we can be healed, so that we can be restored unto You. Father, we pray this morning that we would hold fast to this faith that we have in Christ. And Father, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who is yet to put their faith in Christ, to trust in Him, that today they would trust in Him. And if you are that person this morning, You can simply pray, Father, I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. That in Him I can receive eternal life. That He is perfectly sufficient. And that in Him I can restore new life. Just pray that you believe that this morning. And you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. Father, we give you thanks for this assurance that we have this confidence that we have because all that is all that has been fulfilled and so father with just with just as equal confidence we look forward to the day of his his return when we will be raised to new life we praise you this day in the name of jesus christ our risen lord and savior amen the lord bless you this day Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Setuit Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.